Hi friends, welcome to episode 26 of True Crime Time. I am your host, Megan, and today we have a returning guest. You may remember her from our lively and slightly unhinged Tales from the Quarantine episodes at the beginning of the pandemic. Welcome back, Alex Tomato. Hi, I'm back. <laughs> back again. <laughs> um, today, we're going to talk about John Wayne Gacy, and I know a lot of you are saying you already did that, and that's true. The very first episode of True Crime Time was John Wayne Gacy, but the John Wayne Gacy tapes came out on Netflix, and I want to talk about it, and it's my show, so I can. Um, Gacy has always been, I would say, probably my favorite serial killer, and when I say that, I mean he intrigues me the most, not that I love him or want to glamorize him, because that's not what we do here, that's gross, um, but I do find him interesting, his story, the psychology, um, so we're going to talk about the Gacy tapes today. And I just, before we go any further, I just want to say it's really hot here in New York. I have the air conditioner going. You might hear it sometimes. I'm sorry if that bothers you, um, but we just can't not have it on. So sorry in advance. Um, I really like this docu-series because it gave new information as it relates to the investigation. And I have read everything that I could get my hands on related to this. I used to spend my lunch periods in high school in the library just reading about serial killers particularly Gacy and Dahmer so I really appreciated the new interviews in this limited series with the people who were there um as always we're going to get back and uh go back and tell you the story so you don't have to go back and listen to episode one if you don't want to we want you to be informed so I figured we would kind of follow the flow of the show um to me it's a little like that Charlie Day meme where uh, he has that board up with all the strings. That's kind of what this story is like. Have you seen that meme? I have. You have seen I that have meme. I have seen that meme. That's from um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so basically, we start with Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines, Illinois, December 11th, 1978. Dr. Kim Byers Lund worked at Nissan Pharmacy um, as a teen and worked with Rob Peast. He was a stock boy. He was saving money for a camera and a car. He was also very close with his family. So on this particular night, she actually borrowed Rob's jacket because she worked at the register, which was right by the door. So whenever the door would open, she would get hit with cold air. And that's not a fun time. So um, she noticed and she asked her manager, there was a man kind of walking around checking things out. He was middle-aged. He was wearing a flannel shirt. And her manager was like, oh, that's a contractor. So Rob actually came and asked for his jacket back so he could go outside and ask the contractor about a job. After this, Rob's mom came in and asked where he was. Dr. Kim let him know he was talking to the contractor outside, but his mom said he wasn't. There was no one there. And to tell him to give her a call when he was back in so she could get him. At 10 p.m., his mom called the store. He still wasn't back, which would be weird for him on any day, but especially because it was her birthday that night. And that was the last time anyone saw Rob Peast. So, terrible timing, yeah. I would say. Um, so as I mentioned, this docuseries was the Gacy tape, so periodically they play audio from these. Gacy was interviewed by a member of his defense team while he was awaiting trial. These interviews occurred between November 1979 and April 1980. Over 60 hours of conversation was recorded. The first thing that they play is him responding to the question, what do you think happened? He says he doesn't know, which we come to find 
is a load of bullshit. Loads. Loads. So, Chicago, Illinois, 1978. I'm going to read this like a screenplay. We open on, <laughs> just kidding. Um, Sam Amar- Amaranti, I want to say his name right, is Gacy's criminal attorney. And they were able to interview him for the series, which is great because he had a lot of good information to share. I really liked him. He seemed like personable and good time. No, that's not true. I don't know. That's not a judgment I want to make about him. So, <laughs> so he answered a call from Gacy asking for him to find out why he was being tailed by the Des Plaines police. Sam said, sure. He says everyone in the neighborhood knew John. He was a contractor. His company was called PDM for Painting, Decorating, Maintenance. He was also um, a member of the local Democratic organization. If you guys hear it, my one cat loves to scream. So you might hear that at some point. Sorry, there's nothing that can be done. As you know, if you've listened before, just happens. We have cats around here. That's how it goes. So as I was saying before I was interrupted, um... Gacy was a member of the local Democratic organization and was a captain, which is basically a boots on the ground, help the people type of situation. Sam gave the example, if you need a garbage can, you need your driveway shoveled, he's the guy you call. Which I've never kind of heard of that. I had no idea. In life? That I could ask anybody for a trash can (laughs) and they would just bring it to me. You just go, (laughs) can you do me a favor and just go up to any neighbor on your street and just say, excuse me, sir. You look like you know what's going on. Yeah. Can I have a trash can? Yeah. It's just, I've never heard of that. I don't know if that's a thing that still exists or maybe it was only a Midwest thing or like what. Um, But so Sam asked around and found that they suspected him in the case of a missing person. So that's not, that's not how you want to start your day. Right. So we are now at day one of the Rob Peace investigation. That's December 12th, 1978. A missing persons report was filed by his family who knew something was was wrong because it was so out of character for him to not be in contact. Rob was 15 years old. He was well-liked, the youngest of three kids, and there was, like, no problems to speak of, you know, in in the family. So the officers went back to the drugstore and asked who had been in the store that night. And as I mentioned, Gacy is a contractor, but he was in there to give an estimate for updates to the store. So the police have a list. They go through the list and kind of do a background check for the people who had been in the store that night. That's when they discovered that Gacy did time in Iowa for sodomy several years before. So that's going to bring him right up the list, obviously. Um, So a lieutenant goes to talk to Gacy and wants him to come down to the station to answer some questions. Gacy declined, saying he had just had a death in the family and he was waiting on a call from his mom in Arkansas. Gacy said the lieutenant was rude and he had no respect for the dead. He said he would go when he had time. We're going to find out what that's funny later. And not funny haha, but like funny, you know. I thought it was super creepy. Yeah. I have, so because there's so much tape and audio, I do have a bunch of direct quotes from Gacy in here. And so many of them are incredibly terrifying. Mm. Um, So... A detective was assigned to watch Gacy's house. Gacy's van left the house and they presumed it was him driving because of course they would. It was actually one of his workers, but by the time they figured this out, Gacy was gone. Then Gacy shows up at the police station at 3 a.m. covered in mud. His car had mud everywhere on the back bumper, on the inside, but nobody was there to talk to him about it. Not, well, not about that. 
but he left. He did go back on so on day two of the investigation. He shows up at 10 or 11, um, and they had him wait a long time to talk to anyone because they kind of had to entertain him to keep him there. They didn't have anything to hold him on. They couldn't arrest him at this point. So they just were trying to keep him there until they had something and they didn't know when that would be. Um, they definitely knew something was wrong for sure though. So around 4.30, give or take, they ask if they can have permission to go look in his house. He said no and claimed that they took the keys from him anyway. So I imagine by this time they had a warrant. You can't just do that. Not even in the 70s, right? Um, here are some things they found in the house. A tiki bar, pool table, lots of pictures of clowns on the walls, which is a personal red flag. Yep. Yeah, that's not not great. Other clown things like lamps and things, so more flags. Horrible 70s decor. Um, a lot of books about being gay and also pedophilia. So uh, we were right about the clowns because it just led directly south from there. There's also a picture they show from when they were um, looking around the house. It's just a bunch of chains, locks, sex toys, and handcuffs. Mm -hmm. I wonder, though, did they pull them from different places or did he keep them all together? I know they didn't specify, but just makes you think, you know. Perhaps he had like a clown car style bag that you could Ugh. just keep pulling things out. That's disgusting. I hate that. Yeah. Um, in the trash, though, they found a photo receipt from Nissan Pharmacy. And they also found a class ring from local high school with the initials J-A-S. They also discovered a crawl space. To get access into it, it looks like you had to lift up the floor inside of a front closet. And that would be the only way to get down there. According to investigators, the water table was high in that area. So the sump pump was going pretty much all the time so it didn't flood. Um, the investigators, uh, the investigator rather, said he was claustrophobic, but still wanted to take a look. So he actually got down in there um, and said it was full of muck. So even though the sump pump's going, it's kind of like muddy and mucky, um, but it didn't look disturbed in any way. So they just left because again, there's nothing to, to hold him on. So Gacy at this time, he was married. His wife's name was Marlin. And he said he liked the first two years of marriage, but that's not a great way to start a statement <laughs> about being married. Like, well, two years was fine. Like, you know, um, but he had two kids, Michael and Christine, and he didn't get along with her father, but he managed KFCs that his father-in-law owned. Right. So they kind of had to work together. That was probably very contentious. Um, and he felt like he couldn't ever do anything to make him happy and drew a parallel between his father-in-law and his father, who he felt the same about. He could just never live up to his standards, essentially. I like that. What was that? I never drew that parallel. It's very true. Yeah. Well, he was very, you know, that's something that was kind of always on his mind and like a chip on his shoulder throughout his entire life. Yeah. So who knows if that's actually even the case or he just was kind of like putting that on him, even right. though he's like really nice. He's like, hi, John, how are you? He's like, fuck you. I can never make you happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could be one of those. Um but we're, we're definitely going to get more into that part of it a little later. So Steve Nemers is a person they interviewed for this documentary. He was a Waterloo, Iowa resident. So that's where Gacy was before. So remember, we're kind of talking about um, his life before Chicago and how 
how things came to pass, right? So when Steve was in high school, one of the guys he went to school with worked at a KFC. He stopped there with his friend to pick up his check, and that was the first time he met John Wayne Gacy. He said he seemed very personable, and he actually invited the boys to his house to play pool and drink. They started playing pool for money, um, and then Gacy kind of randomly told him he was on a board that studied homosexuals, which is kind of a weird... Like, imagine you're just, like, shooting pool and someone sidles up to you and they're like, hey, I'm on a board that studies homosexuals. Like, that's kind of a weird... Didn't he say that there was a certificate on the wall that said that he had participated in... Something. A class for, like, sexual behavior? Oh. Um, it's possible. I didn't catch that part. Was that something you saw in a picture, or was it something they talked about? No, it was something they talked about, that he had a wall filled with, like, awards and certifications, and that was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's one thing, too. Like, they give awards for classes and certificates for classes. It doesn't mean you're on the board of anything. Like, what do you... <laughs> like, he's like, I'm on the board. But he did. He, he was a big collector of anything that showed that he had any kind of, like, prestige or, or power or was, like, smart. He kind of hoarded these things. Um, because that's how he was. We're going to talk more about that too. So Gacy states on the tapes that there are three types of sexuality, which we, we know is not correct. Um, but this, and this is all his definition, by the way, he said homosexual, heterosexual, and bisexual. And he claimed that being bisexual means that you could have sex with anyone and it didn't matter who, and there were no feelings involved. And I'm sure if you ask any person who identifies as a bisexual, they would disagree with you. Agreed. Right. Um, but I digress. So I have long read, as I mentioned before, about John Gacy, like every book, everything. And one of the things that is pretty apparent if you, if you kind of look into this case at all, is that he was most likely just straight up gay, but couldn't come to grips with that in his head and probably felt shame in being attracted to men. So instead of being able to accept that, he created this whole definition of what being bisexual means, which is incorrect, um, just so he could kind of feel okay about it. Um, despite having relations with many men, he actually stated that he had never had um, a homosexual relationship being that there were no feelings and there was no love. That's literally a quote that he said. Um, and that's something that's important to note as we move forward. So back to Steve, the two other guys that Steve Nemers was friends with said there was another party they were going to go to the next night and they wanted Gacy to go. They told Steve to stay with Gacy so he could help him get to the party the next day. Steve says he didn't want to stay, but he felt it was safer to stay at the house than go home with a drunk driver, and it was very snowy at that time. So once they left, Gacy said, and I'm, this is another quote, I have an idea. Why don't we play one game for really big stakes? And he said if he won, Steve had to commit a sex act on him, and if Steve won, he had to commit a sex act on Steve. So then... They cut back to Gacy talking about his relations with people. He said the way that he would go about it was he would just bring it up somehow, perhaps telling them he was on the board of something or other. And if the other person wanted to pursue it, they would keep that conversation going. But as we mentioned before, and it's something that's important to note about Gacy, 
He is a liar. So everything he says, we have to take with a grain of salt. So Steve said, and I believe Steve, he said, absolutely not. That's not what we're doing. And Gacy then started laughing and then asked if he wanted to see a stag film. A stag film is just porn, but that's what they called it back in the day. So this other thing, he literally had to set up a projector in order to view this. Like you couldn't just turn on the TV or slap a DVD in there. You had to set up like a screen and a projector, which just seems like a lot of work to me. But he put on the movie or the film rather, and then he left the room. About five minutes later by Steve's account, the lights went on and he heard a click behind him. When he turned around, he saw a gun pointed at his head. He said he could tell it was loaded because he could actually see the bullets. So just to give you an idea of how close they actually were. Gacy told him to take his pants down and Steve said he cried and begged him not to do anything. Suddenly, Gacy laughed and told him to pull his pants up and go over to the bar. Go over to that tiki bar. It made me feel so bad. Right? Yeah. What an experience. So Gacy then stated he loved to put psychological pressure on people to see how they would react. Steve said he became at ease after this and let his guard drop, which, okay, he's a kid, right? I am not victim blaming him. But if anyone ever pulled that crap with me, there's no trust to give back that's gone. And this is also someone he didn't even know. Right? So, I mean... I don't know. I totally... I, I get how he felt with that. Because if somebody did that to me, and I'm not saying it's correct how I would feel, but if I felt threatened and then they were my friend again, just saying in, from past experiences, I'd be like, oh, okay, no, I am safe. This is okay. Let's be friends again. But you, <laughs> but you know what, though? It's not about, like, feel like... However you feel is how you feel. It's not, it's not right or wrong. It's how you feel. So... Right. To, to go by that, just for me personally, I'd be like, no, I'm ready to leave now, you know. But he has nowhere to go. He's helpless. You're right, you're right. There was no Uber back in the day. Yeah. Um, I understand. Okay. Yeah, I get it. But Gacy, at this point, he's like, you know what? Let's go to bed. Let's call it a night. So Steve is in this bedroom, a different bedroom. They had parted ways. And he said he was having trouble going to sleep. And all of a sudden... He feels a hand on his leg. So apparently Gacy quietly snuck in there at some point. He said he can see his like expression um, because there was light coming in through the window. And he said it was truly frightening, the look on his face. It wasn't what he had looked like all night. He looked different and awful. Um, he actually had a knife and he was holding it to Steve's throat as he rubbed his leg. And he told Steve... They were going to finish what they started. Steve said at this point he started crying again and eventually Gacy took the knife away. Gacy said he was frustrated. He, quote, wasn't able to break him. What a thing to say. And then left him alone. And in the morning, they had to make about an hour and a half drive back to Steve's town. Um, on the ride home, Gacy did let him know if he told anyone about what would happen, he would have him killed. Can you imagine what that felt like, that ride back? Like, the terror, the anxiety. Like, I can't, I can't imagine. Especially with uh, the way Gacy drives. Yeah, so, 
What was it? Maybe you want to say it a little louder for the people? He's got a devil foot. He's uh, Is that goes, what they said? No. But he <laughs> drives, you know, super fast. Yes. That is something the investigator said, is that he loved to drive fast. Had a real need for speed. He did have a need for speed, yes. Um, so, again, we need to talk about Gacy's time in Iowa. So, around 1968, as an aside, he was a member of the JCs. The JCs was an organization of men around ages 18 to 35 who did community work, worked with charities, things like that. Um, Gacy was actually a chaplain for the Waterloo Iowa JCs, and they primarily gave blessings after meals. He then aspired to become the president of that organization. That's when rumors started, and I'm saying rumors with air quotes because it's not so much a rumor as something that happened. Um, so he asked a man named Donald Voorhees Sr., no relation to Jason, uh, um, to become his campaign manager. When his son, Donald Voorhees Jr., was 15 years old, John claims that he saw Donald Voorhees Jr. hitchhiking and picked him up. He claims that Junior was asking him about stag films, which that's not you just get in someone's car and ask them about that. So I'm already very, this is suspicious to me. Um, Gacy took him back to his house where they watched these films and had sexual relations. Now, remember, that's what Gacy says, because he was 26. He was either around 26 or 28 at this time. And this guy, this kid is 15 years old. So sus, right? Um, despite his claim that this was all consensual, blah, blah, whatever, he was charged, he was arrested and charged with sodomy. So we definitely don't have the whole story for sure. Um, he had a psychiatric evaluation after his arrest and they show flashes of the therapist reports or notes and whatever on the screen, which for me, I'm very excited to see that. I want to see everything they have to say about him. Um, but they unfortunately don't show it all, but I can tell you what it says in like blips. It says things like psychopathic, antisocial personality. He twists the truth. He's a smooth talker. He's in total denial. He takes no responsibility. He blames others, etc. So we have a little bit of a, like a profile going for this person. Um, he was sentenced to 10 years for sodomy. And when he was sentenced, his wife served him with divorce papers. He said that the last time he saw his children was in 1968. Um, so he goes on to do his time at the men's reformatory at Anamosa. There's actually documentary footage from inside Anamosa. You saw that part? Yeah. So it's weird. He's in the choir. It shows him singing. And he's also the cook. I think he said he was the head cook. He was the head cook. He was the head cook. Um... And he, he said, he's like, I became very powerful and important in prison. So he seems like he felt right at home with everyone else. Um, he actually continued his JC efforts in the prison. So he was like building the JC group, like just recruiting within the prison. And also claimed to have built the first miniature golf course. That's right. Within the uh, facility. I was going to say vicinity, but that's not, I guess that's right also. But either way. Yeah, either way. In the documentary, they say that he once walked past one inmate performing oral sex on another inmate, and he walked over and he kicked the guy in the face several times, resulting in a broken jaw. So clearly still struggling with his own sexuality, that he feels the need to lash out like that um, at others. That's, that's wild. Um, on Christmas that year, 
while he was in the reformatory, uh, his father passed away and he wasn't told until after he was buried, which bothered him very much, despite the fact that they had a very rough relationship. Um, Gacy was sentenced to 10 years, as I mentioned. He only did about a year, though, and he was allowed to do his parole in Illinois, and that's what brought him to Chicago around 1971. Uh, at that time, we we're actually just talking about this before we started recording, the, the investigation tactics and uh, how police stations worked and everything was totally different. So there was no investigation between police stations. So when you move somewhere else, you kind of start off with a clean slate, um, which is different now, thankfully, but for the time, that's how it worked. And he was also divorced at that time from his wife, Marlin. Um, and he missed his kids. He said he wanted a family. He missed that kind of dynamic. He bought a house. Uh, he said it was 8213 Summerdale. I believe that's in Norwood Park. It was kind of middle class, um, quiet, good enough. It was nice. It looked like a nice little place. It did look nice. I liked it. Yeah. I didn't like how he did the insides with the scary, sharp, angular paint job. No, that was nuts. Right? It yeah. was like brown and orange and well, yellow. Well, it's a sign of the times. I know, but it was so sharp and like jagged. Which is not unlike his clown makeup. We're not up to that part yet, but I'm saying the way he did decided to do his clown makeup also very had sharp edges to it. I wonder if he was a big Elvis fan, because Elvis had that same kind of tiki bar in his uh, Graceland. Maybe of... everyone was just wild about tiki bars in the 70s. If you lived in the 70s, can you let us know? If everyone was just wild about tiki bars. And not if you were, like, just born in the 70s. No, like, if you were, like, an adult in the 70s, I want to know if that was, like, a thing everyone had. We want to know about your tiki bar. Yes. <laughs> not related. It, un, you know, it's not really relevant, but we just want to know about it. So please, you know, contact True Crime Time. We want to know about your tiki bar. So I told you we're going to jump around a little bit. That's what we're doing. We're back in 1978. We're back in Des Plaines. We're at day three of the Rob Peace investigation. I'm going to mess up some of these names. I'm so sorry. There's a lot of like Polish and German names and I should know better, but um, there's some investigators on this case. Joe Kozjanek, Bob Schlutz, Schlutz, Ron Robinson, Dave Hockmeister, and Mike Albrecht. Albrecht? Albrecht? Yes. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> Um, so they were all taking shifts and following Gacy everywhere he went trying to be undercover. But Gacy quickly realized, because he's not a non-intelligent person, like he's smart, he's just not great, you know. He realized what was happening. So they decided to change tactics and do what is known as overt surveillance. That's where a detective described this as, you basically go up to the person, you introduce yourself, and let them know that you're going to be watching them 24-7, 365. So like, uh, hey, how you doing? I got eyes on you all the time. Have a nice day. Like that kind of thing. So day four, Gacy, of course, kind of likes this, right? He's trying to build rapport with Loves them. It. He does. Um, he kind of has that life of the party vibe. He's trying to pal around. He seemed to really welcome the attention and even the investigation, even though it was for something awful. Um... He also definitely thought he was so much smarter than they were, claiming at one point on the tapes that he could have ditched them at any time, right? He thinks he's so smart. Um, he really believed he was in control of the situation and would often take them on high-speed chases because he loved to drive fast. And also he was just being a dick, you know? Um, 
it's also hard in, in that situation. It's a lot of, through a lot of neighborhoods, it's very snowy. So you're not supposed to drive fast through residential areas. So the cops were probably trying to keep it safe, but also keep up, you know. Oh, he was a real turdmeister, turd if we're keeping it with, uh, you know. German? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with those yeah. chases. He sure was. Um, so... They would often go into places with him. Like, if he would go out, instead of just sitting outside and watching him, they would just go in. They would hang out with him, you know, because they figure, keep him close, right? Try to try to get whatever you can out of him. Um, Gacy would tell people different stories about why this was happening. He would say they were the FBI, they were his bodyguards. Just, he was having way too much fun with it. Like, he shouldn't have been having any fun at all. But Gacy is Gacy, right? He actually once told them he heard that Rob Peace was in Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin rather, and he was okay. So he was just saying anything. He was just throwing stuff out there. So back to Dr. Kim from Nissan Pharmacy. As part of the investigation, she was asked more questions by police and asked about, um, asking about what Rob or whoever had told her that night. She said again he had gone out to talk to the contractor about a job. Apparently, they told Gacy this, that this is what a witness said, and he denied everything and said she was a liar. So, day five of the investigation, um, Greg Bedeau is one of the investigators. I liked him a lot. He was good. Do you remember who that one was? With, sure the, with the white hair? Yes. I love him. Um, he stated that Gacy had other charges on his rap sheet, battery, disorderly conduct, etc. But, see, in Cook County at this time... It was a place that valued power. So if you were connected and well-liked, a call to someone important would kind of make that go away. And Gacy was connected to an extent. Um, they go on to talk about how Gacy's workers all had similar looks. Slight guys, young, lightish hair. Um, here and there as they checked in on, into him rather, and asked it around, um, they were starting to hear that people knew someone who worked for Gacy, but come to think of it, they hadn't seen them in quite some time. So one by one, there's a bit of a pattern with his workers going missing. For example, um, Greg Goddick is one of the names and John Bukovic as well. So the class ring they found in Gacy's house was actually identified um, and found that it belongs to someone named John Sick. They figured this out and contacted his parents and they said he had been missing for a while. Um, his car, this is what they said, his car had never been found. But during the investigation, investigators discovered that that car, his car, was the same car that another employee had been driving, Mike Rossi. They stated that the VIN number had been altered, and Gacy said it was sold to him for super cheap. So at this point, there are four to five missing people, all who had worked for Gacy. Day six of the investigation, Leroy Stevens, Gacy's civil attorney, and his criminal lawyer, we mentioned before, Sam, were trying to get a federal suit claiming Gacy's civil rights were being violated because they were following him so closely, ruining his business, stuff like that. So Sam even said at the time that he truly believed that he was innocent. Both the lawyers, they thought he was innocent. Um, so by day eight of the investigation, police are pretty much just trying to break Gacy down at this point. They were following him constantly in an effort to put some pressure on him. And he actually invited them into his home 
several times. He was like, sure, come in. Want some coffee? Whatever. Um, they knew that one of the missing people, John Zick, also had a few missing belongings, a little TV, and I think it was a radio. Was that what they mentioned? Yeah, I think Do you remember? so. Um, that, and that his mom told them that. And they thought they actually saw a similar TV in Gacy's house previously. So one of these times where they're in the house, one of the detectives excuses himself to the bathroom so he could take a look without looking suspicious. But he couldn't locate anything, so he just went in and, like, flushed the toilet, as you do when you're trying to cover up, you know, rifling through people's belongings, right? You act natural. Um, but what happens while he's in the bathroom is that the heat kicks on in this enclosed room, and he was right by a vent, and this incredibly horrible smell came through the vent. And all the detectives agree that there's only one smell that it could be. One they've smelled many, many times, which is death, unfortunately. Not poop. No, not, not that from the bathroom. I probably would have thought that immediately, that something was trapped terrible in the bathroom. <laughs> you think so? Coming through the vent? If, if, if I were just in the bathroom, if I were in another room and I smelled that initially, I'd probably be like, oh my god. No, but like... But if I smelled that and just that first hit, I'd be like, oh, oh someone's but trapped. But I'm saying as the heat kicks on, though, because it's a result of the heat kicking on. <laughs> yeah? Especially if the heat is kicking it on. It sounds like you've had some experiences. I mean, you've never been into a bathroom and you've been like, oh, that's a hollow. <laughs> no. Carry on. <laughs> anyway... We've gotten a little off track, everyone. Um, so, David Cram, another of Gacy's employees, is pulled in for questioning. And he's asked if he had ever seen John lose his temper. He said yes. Um, he said he was made to dig in the crawl space and he changed direction going another way than what he was told. When Gacy uh, came down to check on him, he lost his mind when he saw that he had changed course. So that's a big flag as well. Um, so they want a second search warrant for the house, but those are very, very hard to get because they already searched. They didn't find anything. Right. So you have to have new evidence or like new, um, probable cause rather to tell the judge. So he'll give you it. You can't just like get a warrant willy nilly. So back to Dr. Kim for one second. She said the night Rob went missing. Um, she had brought in film to be processed and she tore off the receipt when she filled out the info and put it in her pocket only it wasn't her pocket, she was still wearing Rob's jacket. This is very important because the receipt was found in the trash at Gacy's house. So now they have something putting Rob in the house. Um, so the re receipt plus the terrible smell were enough to get a second warrant. But also that's weird, like, it's kind of subjective. Did they go to the judge, like, Judge, we smelled something <laughs> terrible. Like, how does that... We smelled something terrible in the bathroom. <laughs> we need a second bar. I'm very curious about that part of it. Cause like, that's not, it's not something you actually have like proof of. It's just like, you're just saying it or like, would that hold up now? Like, could they bring that up now? Well, I, I mean, imagine... I, wa I want to know the rule about smells. <laughs> I need to, that's the thing I need to know. They say, excuse me, judge. <laughs> I gotta ask you something. There's a real strong smell in this man's bathroom. We need to investigate this further. <sighs> but imagine going in and seeing in his trash garbage pail 
that receipt after all that time that they go in on that day yeah. and they find the the slip that day. For sure. No, I agree. I agree. That's very suspicious. I think the only thing that would have been better than that is if they found the jacket as well. Um, but so this is the moment when things start to change. So Gacy, Gacy rather slowly starts to unravel and finally starts to go off the rails just a little bit. Like he's starting to get messy, a little disorganized and so on. So Gacy calls his lawyer, Sam, who we like, despite who he represented. And he said he wanted to talk. So he goes into the office and Sam's like, I don't believe you anymore. <laughs> He's like yelling at him, which I like. We like that energy. Um, and he confronts him and he's like, stop lying. And I think he said he hit the table or something. He was like, stop lying and smash the table. Good on you, Sam. Yeah. Um, and then Gacy was like, can I have a drink? <laughs> and old timey lawyers, maybe lawyers today still as well, just always used to keep booze in their office. So, of course, he provided him with a drink. Oh, well, yeah, sure. I wish they talked like that. That's not what happened, unfortunately. What are you drinking? Loverboy. Has anyone ever tried? Sorry, side note. Loverboy. What is it? Iced tea? Loverboy. Sparkling hard tea. Lemon iced tea. So it's like a half and half kissed with ginger. Wow. That sounds great. And listen, if you guys want us to advertise for you for that spot we did for free now, just uh, send me an email. But anyway. Uh, lover boy. It's okay. Yeah. That's going to be um, 50, $50 at least. So, <laughs> so Gacy has a drink and then he has a couple more drinks and then he starts talking. And the first thing he says is, this boy is dead. He follows that up by saying... I've been the judge, jury, and executioner for many, many people and said he wanted to tell them everything that happened. Sam said it was one of the scariest nights of his life. So Gacy is just shooting off at the mouth and he tells them everything. I'm using air quotes again. And then he just falls asleep. He falls asleep right in the office, right in the lawyer's office. I can't imagine, imagine being the lawyers are being like, um... Wait, do we just sitting there and looking at him? Should you wake? Should we wake him up or like? What? Do we put a blanket on him? <laughs> yeah, probably. He's a murderer. I don't want to. I would say no blanket. That's what I would say. So on the Gacy tape, he says Gacy says he remembers going into Sam's office, but he wasn't going with the intention to tell them all of the stuff he wound up saying. He said something else took over. But again, he never accepts responsibility. So really, he just told them what happened is really what happened. So his lawyers actually considered getting him to a psychiatrist. So they're sitting there, he's sleeping, and they're like panicking. What do we What do? we do? They actually wanted to have him committed, and they made an appointment for 8 a.m. Um, he was, of course, tailed to his lawyer's office, and I believe it was a bit of a changing of the guard situation where I think two new investigators came to sit outside of the office. So the investigators were rolling up, and these lawyers were coming out and invited them inside, and they said to the investigators, you can't let Gacy go. If he tries to leave, you cannot let him leave. They were very adamant about that. Um, about 6 a.m., Gacy wakes up in the office and is confused. He's like, what, why am I here? Like, what's happening? And Sam reminds him that he told him everything. And Gacy's like, okay, well, I'm busy today and I have to go. So he just leaves. Bye-bye. Yeah, he's like, well, I, well, I have plans. I'm sorry I told you that I murdered people, but, you know, 
I've got houses to do. I have houses to paint and <laughs> clown stuff to buy. I don't know. That's creepy. I don't like it. So they um, pick up. That was actually the end of the first episode. It kind of just ended abruptly with him like shooting out of the office. So when the second episode starts, they're talking about um, Michael Bonin. He was 17 years old when he disappeared in 1976. Mike said he was going to get something to eat before he caught the bus home and apparently never made the bus. His family, of course, had a hard time with this. His dad blamed himself and went on benders. He couldn't uh, deal with the fact that he couldn't find his son and he did not believe that he ran away because that's kind of how the police treated it at the time is that, oh, like they just ran away, whatever. That's not like that common, like all, that's not the answer all the time. Oh, well, he just ran, he'll come back. Like, no. But we know a little better now, not much, but slightly. Um, he used to bring his daughter, Mike's little sister, to try to get information. And she was saying, like, maybe a sympathy he brought her along. She wasn't totally sure. Um, and the more time that passed, the more freaked out the family was getting. And they actually learned later that Michael had worked with or had gone to work with John Wayne Gacy. So another common thread here. So we're back to the Rob Peace investigation, day 10. Um, when Gacy told his lawyer everything that night, he didn't just talk about Rob Peace. He spoke of other victims as well. And again, his lawyer was super troubled because he, he couldn't say anything to anyone because of attorney-client privilege. So Gacy leaves the lawyer's office, kind of in a rush. He is followed as usual, and Gacy allegedly with, was popping volume and speeding, as usual again. And Gacy makes a comment on the tapes. Oh, they said they couldn't keep up with me because I was driving on snowy streets, but they couldn't keep up with me anyhow. Like, what a dick. Just taking cheap shots. Like, they're interviewing you because you're a murderer and you're talking about how you love to speed. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't like his attitude, but... So he pulls into a gas station and he just goes and he hands the attendants, uh, the attendant, one person, three joints. He's just, like, trying to get rid of evidence and just, like, puts it in his hands. Or I think someone said his pocket, but he still just, like, handed it over. And the kid was probably like, what? Like, thank you, but what? Um... And the police actually saw this, but they didn't act at the moment because they were like, do we get him for this? Like, do we wait? Where, what are we going to get him on that we can hold him? So he then drove to the cemetery to his father's grave, which is kind of an interesting move after he confessed. It's almost like he started reflecting or something. That's not just a place. Like, why would he go there that day? He probably felt like he was getting close to you know being caught and wanted to go pay his respects visit daddy or something of the like mm -hmm. so after some back and forth they decided to pull him over and arrest him for the weed so they did decide to move on that um they interview at this point marty Zelinsky. he worked with gacy he also was a, a former photographer for them and that's how he knew gacy's wife carol that's gacy's second wife now so he is remarried Carol was described as quiet and pleasant. She already had two children when she meets John, and John likes her well enough, and he wants a family. So he's like, move in. Want to come, come move in? <laughs> you know? And 
it's said they seemed like a solid couple. It was said that Carol seems to be on the submissive side, which probably suited him just fine. Um, he proposed and they got married. And before they got married, he told her he had been in jail and explained that he was bisexual, but not gay. He said that. <laughs> and he also said he thought gay people were sick and weak, which again is clearly just a projection. Like he struck me as the type of person that would go into the bathroom and like look at himself in the mirror and be like, stupid, stupid, and like smack himself in the head. Real creepy. He gave that kind of vibe to me. Um, so that's a little... That's not great. That's not what you want. So Give himself a good morning scream. Yeah, I can definitely picture it. So he also was quoted as saying about Carol, if she had been stronger, maybe this thing wouldn't have gotten loose. So he's still passing the buck. Like it's her, it's Carol's fault now. It's not Carol's fault. It's not. No, she seemed like a very nice lady and I feel bad for her. Um, so July 1st, 1972, 1972 rather, is when they got married. They were a typical Chicago family, pretty social, even on the bowling league. And their photographer claimed he never saw any affection between them. Like they got along good, but there was no affection. And he also said Gacy had two sides. One side was nice and the other side was a total asshole and he could turn on a dime. And that's one of the ways I've always thought of Gacy and always have described him to anyone who will listen to me. Also, I've always said that. Um, Marty's impression of Gacy was that he only cared about himself. And Gacy has also pretty much admitted this on several occasions. And he also repeatedly stated that he enjoyed power. Um, Marty also worked for him at the contracting company where, as we mentioned, it had a bunch of young guys working for him, um, which apparently he was asked about several times. People would be like, why do you keep hiring these young guys? You know? And he said he was like a father figure to a lot of them. Um, he wanted to be sure they did things the right way. And he didn't mind taking them on to help them break into the business. That was Gacy's kind of go-to statement about that. But we know better. We sure do. So, Tony Antonucci. Oh, good. Do you like him? Yeah. You like Tony Antonucci? I was hoping that you were going to bring him up. I, I am. It's happening right now. He was a former employee when he was 16. One of his tasks was to dig a barbecue pit in John's backyard. He threw this big like barbecue every summer and always had themes, right? So he said, uh, Tony says, he dug around eight to 10 inches down so he could pour a concrete slab. But when John saw it, he was like, no, no, you gotta go deeper than that. So he did, he kept going deeper and deeper to the point he thought it was excessive. Um, and then I guess he left because it took him the whole day or whatever. And when he com came back to finish the job, it had already been filled in. So that's interesting, especially in retrospect. Um, Gacy says at this time, he had a lot going on and was running himself ragged. He had his wife, his stepkids, his job, this party that he took very seriously, being the Democratic precinct captain, all of that. He relates his drive back to his dad the need to do things better, work harder, um, things like that. And his dad didn't think much of him and he wanted to overcome that. He even worked at the local Polish organization and was the director of their parade. Um, and he didn't like anyone telling him what to do, which worked perfectly in that organization because he kind of called the shots, especially with the parade. Like, don't get in his way about the parade. That suit, red hard hat. Was that what he was wearing? Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, 
You heard it here first. Red suit, red hard hat. That's what he was wearing. So now we get to the clown part. My least favorite part. So Gacy loves to be a clown. He said he would appear in at least 10 to 15 parades. Pogo the clown was Gacy's complete creation. The whole look, the pointy ass makeup, everything. He was very proud of Pogo. Here's the thing. He did it for free. And as I've said before on the TCT Instagram, if you follow us there, please come join. I will say it again. I don't like clowns. I don't trust them. Like, when you're doing that for free, especially, it concerns me because, like, what are you trying to hide? Like, you're doing something. It's a form of escapism. But, like, it feels bad to me. Like, it's not, like, a happy, fun thing. It's, like, you're hiding yourself, and I don't like it. Um, and he would do this in parades for the local Democratic Party at homes for the elderly or sick children, which is nice. I acknowledge. But he said in the documentary, this is creepy, and this is, again, a direct quote. If I was in a bad mood, it was bad for me to be a clown because some of those kids could be little bastards. And Tom sometimes said he wanted to whack the shit out of them. That's what he said. So that's a great person you want around kids. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's the person who's behind the clown facade. Like, that's what you want. I'd like to be a clown. Okay, well, you're not, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can make a lot of money these days doing it, but that's another story for another time. How do you know that? Um, I, I've seen, I've seen videos of people flashing their cash from being children's clown, clown party All right, well, people. that sounds like a whole other underbelly that I don't want to know about. Um. I'd be a nice one. This is, but this is what's going to further trouble me about what you just said. Gacy said as a clown, you could basically do anything you want, even bad things. Like, he would go and just, like, get handsy with people and be creepy and, like, want to hurt children. He actually told the officers this that had been talking to him or telling him. He said more than once, he said it on the tapes, he said to the investigators, as a clown, you can get away with anything. Yeah, no, I would just want to make balloon animals. <laughs> Well, you better get practicing. Um, but for me, this was just very validating about my fear of clowns. I was like, I was right the whole time. I, have, I make no apologies. So we left off that they arrested Gacy for the weed. Then they go back to the station. While he was in there, they were still trying to figure out where Rob is. Where is Rob Peace? And they're holding out hope that maybe he was still at Gacy's house. So... December 21st, 1978, they're back searching Gacy's house. They knew there weren't a lot of places to hide a body in the house, so they wanted to go back into the crawl space. The next part was particularly interesting to me because I never heard an in-depth uh, in explanation of the discovery of the crawl space. So the first man in is Dan Gentry. I love Dan Gentry. He says he goes in there and he crawls to the east and then to the south. And he has his flashlight and he says he sees three small puddles in the mud because that's what's everywhere in mud. He says he sees a bunch of little red worms. Yeah. And when his light hits them, they go back into the mud. And that gave me chills because I, of course, know and just as Dan know and just like everyone else knows that the next thing you're going to find is not going to be a good thing. Right. So 
Dan said he took his entrenching tool and he stuck it in the ground and immediately hit what felt like a brick or something else solid, like a pipe. So he brings up the tool and lo and behold, it's a shoulder bone. What I love about Dan Gentry is he says when he found that, he believes his first thought was, we gotcha, you bastard. And I, lo- I love that energy. Um, that moment must have been so incredibly satisfying, having been working on this for so long and being so suspicious, but not having anything to go on. So a bunch of the officers are gathered in the house and are present when Dan yells up that he found a bone. So naturally, they're like, is it peace? And Dan is looking at this bone and he's like, this is too old to be peace. He's only been missing a little while. So they keep digging in a different corner and found what they thought was a knee. In another corner, they find two long bones. That's your legs. So now they're up to three bodies. I can't imagine the shock of going in looking for one missing person and coming up with the bones of multiple others. So now they know they have quite a situation on their hands. And Dan called his sergeant to let them know there was a lot more going on than they thought. While this is happening, Gacy was in one of the security rooms. I believe, um, I believe they said it was a security room. And one of the guys went back to talk to him. Gacy asked if they had been in the crawl space. He said, yes, they had. Gacy's response to this was, my worms. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) He said, I'm never going to spend a day in jail for this, Um, which is a very interesting response, considering they hadn't discussed anything else at this point. He's just like, I'm not going to jail. And they're like, for what? Like, you know, it's your worm farm. (laughs) So Gacy's lawyer goes in to talk to him and Gacy says he wants everyone to know what happened. And his lawyer, of course, is like, don't do that. But he wouldn't listen. Um, Because as we know by now, he is not going to do what people tell him to do. So in a room with like eight or nine other people, he started talking. He told them he started killing in 1972 and they play snippets of tape. He claims Greyhound Busboy was number one. It sounds like when John and Carol were dating, they spent New Year's together. Then he took her home that night and at 1 a.m. he went to the bus depot. So we have to remember for this time it was really rough to come out as gay or or anything other than straight, we'll say. People's families would disown them. Their communities would. um, And not, of course, that this never happens today, but it was on a much larger scale at that time. So it seems like there were these known kind of like gay hangout spots where people knew to go uh, pick people up. And one of these places was the bus station. So Gacy goes and picks up one of the guys and offered to show him the sights. And he said the kid didn't have to leave until noon the next day. So Gacy turned the convo sexual and took him home. He said they engaged in some sexual activity at the house. And he told the guy he could stay there overnight and he would drive him back to the bus station Quick the question. next day. Yes. In the house, was it like in his uh, boys club garage? No, I think this was just like the regular house. Hmm. 
um, because this he wasn't living with Carol at this time, so he still had the house to himself. Oh, uh, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So Gacy says he goes to lay down, and something startles him, and he wakes up, and he claims claims being the operative word. He saw this guy in the doorway with a knife and he came at him. So he jumped up and they were wrestling around and struggling. He said, I believe I stabbed him a couple times in the chest. He then claimed he panicked. And instead of calling the police because it would look bad, he shoved him in the crawl space, dug a hole and buried him. Um, Nobody ever came looking for him. And Gacy said he believes he didn't have another sexual relationship with a man until 1974 or 1975. So John and Carol are married at this point in 1974. um, And their photographer friend said it seemed like John lost interest in Carol. And Carol, I guess, um, from being interviewed by police, had said at the beginning everything was fine, but it did go downhill. He didn't want anything to do with her. And she said he found it very difficult to be sexual with her. Uh, They then cut back to Gacy on tape, verifying that, yeah, they did fight over this, but claims it was because he was tired, not because he wasn't interested in her. And that's because of all his extracurricular activities. Clearly, he was very tired from them. So just like you're saying, the garage at Gacy's house was pretty much set up like a separate apartment almost. Um, They said that Carol knew he was engaging in relations with males So even when they did live together, he would do this, but they were just like in the garage. Yeah. Um, And so that's what would happen when Carol was home. So in 1975, our friend Tony Antonucci had a nail go through his foot on the job. One night while his parents were away, Gacy showed up at his house to check on him and brought wine. He said he used to joke with him because he was on the wrestling team. So they were wrestling around and all of a sudden Gacy got tony's arm behind his back and put a handcuff on him tony said gacy then went out of the room he said he thought it was kind of a test because he had known gacy to put people in stressful situations which is something we've heard before so tony thought he could get out of the handcuff and he did when gacy came back in the room tony kicked his legs out from under him and that sent him right to the floor He said he kept his face pressed into the carpet and turned the tables by handcuffing him. Gacy went quiet at that point and then said, you're the only one that got out of the handcuffs and got them on me. Sweep the leg, Tony. Oh, that does fit. That's that's the karate kid. If you guys don't know, we're old. Um, I've never seen the movie. Really? Yeah. Okay. So then you don't even know. You should watch it. It's, It's good. It's a classic. Don't tell me what to do. I never would. Um, In retrospect, though, like for Tony, I can't imagine that must haunt him. You know, him saying that because I'm sure at the time he just brushed it off. Um, And then so Tony let him out of the handcuffs at that point and they just didn't talk about it again. That was it. He said it was about two weeks after that that John Butkovich went missing. So Gacy. And he was the Mopar man, right? Tony and he were talking about like cars, 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 right? So Gacy on the tape said he had the strongest feelings for him, him being John Bukovic. John, in this part, just to, for clarification, I'm going to refer to John Bukovic as John and Gacy as Gacy, just so there's no confusion. So John was described as a good kid. He worked for Gacy on different projects. 
And Tony, Tony and John were friendly and bonded because just like you said, they had the same types of cars. Were they exactly the same? I don't remember what they said. Just like similar? No, they weren't the same, but I think some of like the modification companies that these were the same, which would be the Mopar. Oh, look at you, little car expert. <laughs> That's me. I don't know anything about cars. I can change water fluid. You can. She can change the tire on the, what is that scary highway? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, the one in, uh, the one. Uh, 495. Uh, the Long Island Expressway? No, in Queens. In I, Brooklyn. The Belt Parkway? Yeah, the Belt Parkway. That's the scariest parkway around boys and girls and everyone else. Anyway, so they bonded over cars, so they were very friendly. Um, and Gacy said he treated John like a son, but he also said they had become sexually involved. So I don't know how those two things go together, but that, I guess, would explain the pedophilia books in his house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, we're taking everything with a grain of salt that Gacy says because he claims it's all consensual, but from these stories, he's really forcing people into these things with handcuffs, right? So one day, Tony asked Gacy about a particular project and asked if he would be working with John Bukovich. Gacy said no, that he had quit, and Tony didn't question that, but did find it strange that he had left his car behind, which to him was kind of like, he loved this car. He talked about it all the time. Why would he just leave it? That doesn't make sense. So Gacy's version of what happened is um, a little different. He says on the tape that John was belligerent and arguing with him about his pay and that he was quitting. Gacy admitted that he handcuffed him and told him he wasn't going to fight with anybody. Gacy stated... They did not play this part, but he had strangled John to death. Um, so that's something he admitted to. He said he woke up the next day in his bed, and when he got up and walked in the other room, he didn't specify what room, just he walked into a, a room, and he walked into John's feet. He said the rope was still around his neck. He said he didn't know what to do, so he went to the garage, dug a hole, and put him in there. And he said he kept getting away with it. So he didn't stop. Like, he felt compelled to keep going because he was doing these things and nothing happened. Was he with Carol at this point? I think so. I wonder if she was away or if she was home and was just like... Oh, <laughs> Imagine. Okay. No, I'm sure. I'm sure she's probably... You know, it sounds... There are gaps in time where it sounds like she couldn't have been there. So I don't know if maybe they started to separate. Yeah. Maybe they were separated. Maybe she, like was visiting her parents or something and also it, it at no other point did it ever say that he seemed to black out at any point that this would be the only time that he, he would say i woke up and i just saw his feet i don't yeah. know what happened i don't know crazy yeah but he did say like he was like i strangled him and then i woke up and he was there so he did admit to it but then was like yeah, but I was surprised to find him there in the morning. Like it's very... Yeah, but that's what I mean, though. It's like, well, that, that's what must have happened. Right. Nobody came in, did this yeah. for me. Right. So, Gacy claims after that is when his marriage changed. Oh, there we go. Just answered the question for you. <laughs> well. <laughs> so, he and Carol were divorced in 76, and she had moved out. So, I guess... I don't think she witnessed it, though. I think that's when the turning point maybe for him was, and he even grew more distant... 
because of what he was doing. No, that's true. She said it said they said that she had asked for the divorce the year prior and he and it was finalized in February of the following year. So maybe she was just yeah, at mom's. Yeah, that makes sense. Um so Gacy mentioned going out drinking and cruising for guys. Um around this area called Bug House Square. Butter boy, it's okay. <laughs> Gacy specifically said he looked for the innocent ones. He would offer drugs, jobs, etc., just to get them in the car. And a lot of these kids at this time, you know, for the gay community, they were runaways and they were trying to kind of survive off the streets. Um, there was a quote I found particularly troubling. I mean, all of them are, <laughs> are troubling, right? But he said, you bought them for an hour, you bought them for two hours, you bought their body to do what you want with it. Yeah. Yeah, he said, they're, to me, they're not a human being. It's like you going to the store, if you buy something, if you bring it home and you decide you don't like it and you want to break it, it's yours to break because you paid for it. Like, I don't know about how you shop for things, but if I spend money on something, like, first of all, I don't want to take it home and break it. That's, like, not how shopping works to me. But the fact that he didn't see people as people, he saw them as things that he could discard or destroy kind of as he saw fit that was his mentality even after the fact when i saw that i thought of it as um paying for i guess sexual favors or whatever you're paying for even if it's just like for a friend whatever you are not buying them even you are renting their time <laughs> right and to me, if I am renting a room in a hotel, if I don't like it, maybe I'll complain about it and ask for a different room, but I'm not going to Trash smash it? the lamps and... The clown lamps? Yes, I'm not going to smash the clown lamps. I'm not going to destroy my tiki bar. Right. Uh, you don't own anything. He definitely had, like, aside from his, his horrible views on human beings he definitely had like an underlying rage issue that seemed to be able to be activated with almost no prompting hair pin trigger groups for real i wonder what his sign was i want to look that up later fire he's definitely a fire sign well i feel like that list that you showed me before it was all just like <laughs> gemini sagittarius and yeah libra maybe i don't see i would believe libra but yeah, I've not a Taurus in sight. Thank no, you there's much. really not. But I've seen, I have seen a lot of um, Sagittarius serial killers, and I want to say, as a Sagittarius, we don't claim them. We don't, we don't. But I have seen, I have seen Gemini. Uh, you don't have to claim them for the <laughs> list to be made. <laughs> we don't want to claim. Listen, no. I have seen a Scorpio or two, and that's a story for another time because no, no to Scorpios for me. But anyway, maybe that was the other sign, not Libra. Yeah, mm. that's neither here nor there. Anyway. So, long story short, Gacy is a piece of shit, no matter what his star sign is, right? Correct. Right. So, in 1978, Michael Albrecht of the Des Plaines Police was getting statements from Gacy. And he said he's just talking nonstop. He's not helping himself in the slightest. So, while they're speaking, remember, the police are going through his home still. This, this is for the second time. And um, they actually started excavating his house on December 22nd, 1978. So that means 
They started taking down the walls. They were taking up the floor. And at this time, there was no PPE. There was no safety gear. There's no, what were we saying before? Hairnets, shoe covers. Mustache containers. (laughs) Mustache containers. um, No clothing covers of any kind. So they're really just compromising the crap out of this crime scene. But again, it was a different time. But I do wonder, I am curious about this. Today, even, if you're at a specific location, which is essentially a mass grave, and you have to tear everything out, like, is it still followed to the letter? Or are they just, like, ripping everything out to see? Like, I'm curious to know. It probably depends on where the mass grave is. I mean, if it's in your own crawl space, they're probably not going to... Yeah. Well, so they're thinking at this point that it might not just be the crawl space. So that's why they're taking apart everything. They're not just in the crawl space. They're in the kitchen. They're in the bedrooms. They're right. in. They're by the freaking tiki bar, probably. I think that was in the basement. Maybe if it were in a more, you know, open space, they would have taken more precautions than in someone's personal residence. Yeah. Well, the other thing, the other thing we were just saying before is that one of the things I found interesting is that the guys that are doing this and like tearing down the house are the investigators. Like it's the same people they interviewed who aren't CSIs in specific. (laughs) They're... They're just the investigators, right? They're men in rugby shirts for warmth. They are men. Well, it was very cold in Chicago at that time, so I understand. But, you know, these guys are really in there. They're really hands-on. They're back in the crawl space in that gross mud, recovering body after body. Or really more skeletal remains at that point. But in some cases, as our pal Dan Gentry from before said, they are very much intact but very decomposed. Um, they were in every direction. There was nothing really common about the way that they were found, like their positions. Some were face up, some were face down, some are side by side, and there's nothing really consistent. Um, they did find another victim by the barbecue pit, which makes sense from the story we heard before. And John Bukovic, as mentioned, um, was found in the garage. So Tony actually recalled that around the time Bukovic was missing Tony himself was in the garage and there was a new concrete floor which by itself is not weird but in retrospect with all the new information coming to light he's like wait a minute he didn't realize he was standing above his friend you know yeah that's awful um and Gacy you know he honestly has some of the scariest sound bites I've ever heard and his voice it's not like a menacing voice in and of itself, but because of what he's saying too, it's just like, ugh. it's weird because everything is just so nonchalant and matter of fact. It is. Very and much. just sounds like the boy next door, but it does. Gone wild. Well, boy, boy next door gone wild. Yeah. So he said at this point, he goes, the having of the corpses and the hiding them in the basement, it was a hiding place. It was a secret place. Those are my bodies. That's where I wanted to keep them. They had no right to touch them. Wrong. Are you kidding? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You're wrong. You're so wrong. But uh, the thing is, reading quotes like that in print is one thing. Hearing him say them is 
such a different thing for me that like you really think that you're a real human person who's saying that and thinking that I I can't even wrap my head around it um so from here Gacy details each murder his victims pretty much went with him voluntarily for one reason or another money or drugs or sex and some of them he let go but then some he didn't and Gacy stated that some of these people were sex workers and that sometimes they tried to charge him more after the fact or threatened to out him. And that's why he killed them. But everybody knows at this point that you can't take him at his word, you know, um, and he can never be wrong or at fault. So everything is just him passing the buck. Well, they did this and they did this and they said this, you know, um, and Gacy had a di had different MOs, according to police, but he seemed to be just an opportunist really he didn't have a type as much as he could just try to get whoever you know um to that to that point Gacy had an Oldsmobile and it had a spotlight on it and he would occasionally impersonate police and he claims he didn't do that he claims he did not impersonate police but he was driving around with this car with the light and people would say oh you're a cop and he wouldn't say no so what's that to you Right, with his, with his leather jacket that they said he often wore that looked like a policeman's jacket. Exactly. He was wearing this, like, brown leather jacket. Like an undercover cop. Exactly, outfit. with the car that's like an undercover car. And he also had 50-plus badges from assorted police departments. He had a collection of them. So you're telling me he didn't slip a few of those in that jacket to, like, flash at people? Showing his collection at real opportune moments. <laughs> Imagine he opened them and like each side was like totally full. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're a cop. And he just takes out a piece of his collection. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, you know, he really went out of his way. So he did. Um, he actually also said, I think at one point he was like, I got a lot of free sex for that. But like, you're telling me you're not, a, you're not impersonating it, but you just let them think it. And then you benefited, but you didn't do it though. Right? Like, um, so anyway, back to the excavation. They said, as I stated before, there was something different about each body they recovered, like the position. None of them were really the same. And some were found with ligatures uh, still around their necks. So the rope with a knot, essentially. They believed that these kids were pretty much tortured. Um, Larry Finder, prosecutor, would specifically ask how Gacy killed his victims, and that's when he told them about his magic trick, or his handcuff trick, where he'd basically put the handcuffs on himself, fumble around, and then be like, boop, I got them off. Do you want to try? Then he would tell the guy to put them on. He's like, I'll show you how to do, I'll show you how to do this. It's a fun party trick, right? Um, so they would. They would put on the handcuffs and then struggle to get them off. And when they weren't able to get them off, they would say, how do I get them off? What's the trick? And he would say, the trick is that you need to have the key. Damn. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I, mm. but that was one of his things. The other was the rope. He would usually do these two things together, right? So he offered to demonstrate his rope trick. And he asked for a rope and they're like, we're not giving you a rope. <laughs> we're not doing that. And he said, fine. So he took a rosary mm -hmm. and he actually did this on the prosecutor's hand. He said, 
um, to imagine that his fist is a head and that his wrist is a neck and he would then tie or like wrap the rosary around it um, and tie a slipknot. Then he would put a pencil through it and then tie another slipknot over that. And then he said to take the pencil and twist it. And once you twist it two or three times, it gets pretty tight. He said this was the point where the boys would pass out. So he gets them with the handcuffs and then he gets them with the rope, right? So one of the detectives stated, this is such a personal way to kill someone because you're really, you're right up on them. It's not like a gun or something else. You know, it's, you're right up close and personal yeah. and that's, you know, terrible. So one it's like of, a medieval torture device. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what that's called. I can't remember. I don't remember the name for it, just that he liked to do these tricks that he called them. Um, So one of the investigators, and this is something that, you know, they really don't talk about, but um, Raphael Tovar said this. He talked about not taking his work home with him because working on a case like this, I can't imagine finding body after body of young boys all the time, you know. He said he had a trick where he actually used a coin one specific coin he'd keep in his pocket at work. And when he got home, he would take it out and like throw it in a dish or something. Ashtray. Ashtray. Of course, he had an ashtray. Um, and that's that was a way that he would kind of compartmentalize so he could still live his life and not be haunted by, you know, what was going on. And I thought that was pretty smart. Dan um, Gentry talked about, you know, people would ask him, if his work bothers him and he would say that he's there for the dead and he is trying to bring family's closure. So for him, it wasn't so much about him. It was about the work he was doing and he felt his work was very important. And I think that's very admirable. Um, so Mike Bonin's family, Bonin, uh, around Christmas time that they were able to recover his body. Um, his sister was still very young, but she remembered them getting the call. And she said after that, she felt like everything was just underwater. Yeah. Like, there's such a ripple effect, you know? And I don't even know that the people who commit these crimes think of it that way. They're just, like, in the moment doing whatever they're doing. They're not thinking about how this affects a family, a community. Of course they don't. No. It's really, you know, awful. So... Or they do, and that's another reason that they well, love it. Yeah, that that's true, too. That could be. So they talked about Gacy keeping trophies at one point. They showed a few pictures of these. They actually found Michael's fishing license in the house. They also showed pictures of, like, watches, bracelets, rings. I don't really remember anything else from those pictures, but just, like, pieces. He would yeah. keep pieces from all of his victims. Um, on day four of the excavation... They found six more bodies. So the total at this point, they're up to 15, 15 bodies. Dan said the body recovery was every day at this point. By day five, there were six more bodies. So then 21. Um, And they would put numbered flags in the crawl space in order to somehow identify each person. The pieces they recovered were blackened from decomposition. So nothing really to go on at that time. um, And that's why they assigned the numbers. They kept asking Gacy while this excavation was going on, what about Rob Peast? 
And he told them, because he liked to speak in riddles for some reason, he's not above ground and he's not below ground. And after much back and forth and sounding bothered, like, sorry, this is an inconvenience for you, buddy. He finally told them about Rob. He gave a weird half-assed confession, not unlike Ted Bundy when he started talking, um, but did everything in the third person. Did you watch the Ted tapes? Yeah. Yeah. When he started confessing and he's like, well, I imagine if somebody did it, it would be some, like, just, just say the thing. Like, no one wants to hear your troll riddles. Get on here. So. I wonder why he would put him in where he did instead of just putting him by his house. Like, what, what He was out of room. He was. He was out of room. Everywhere was full. Um, so he said when he was talking about Rob, he said he had a vision, right? He said there was water and a bridge and where the road, something about where the road ends. And then he said to leave Rob where he's at and assume he's underwater. So thanks, Charlie Manson. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about riddles. Yeah. The guy exclusively speaks in troll riddles ever. I'll talk about him one day, someday. Um, but so I know we were just talking about how the investigators, you know, lived, were able to live their lives kind of outside of, of the case by kind of compartmentalizing. Gacy's attorney even made a point to talk about that. Um, and how everyone is impacted and nobody sees like, like something we wouldn't see because the media doesn't cover that, but people's lives are changed. People working on the case, people are getting divorced from strained relationships. Their families falling apart, their substance abuse, because people are having such trouble coping with these things. It really is like a tsunami of just shit, you know, it's really sad. Um, for example, like Mike Bonin's dad really took it hard and he was wondering why he was alive and Harold Peace, Rob's father, kept asking the same questions. Why? 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 He wanted to know the answer. And the detective honestly felt the same. But the best way for him to describe it was that he said there was no rhyme or reason. He said the best thing was to think of it like Rob got struck by lightning. Like that's how much it made sense. There was no other reason than it happened, you know. So at this point, there are up to 21 bodies Excavation is still going on. Dan said body number 27 was rough. Now, remember, they're hands on. They're down in it. He said they couldn't get him out of the mud. Number 27. He said he knelt over him and had to get his hands into the mud and under him behind his back. And there's no room for him to kind of lean back. So he has no leverage. And this is so terrible. But he was running out of options and he needed to get him out. So what he did, he did was he actually put his fingers like into the rib cage in order to, to get him free. Um, I can't imagine how like your life has changed forever. Everyone's life, the, you know, number 27, unfortunately. And I hate to call him a number because he was a person, Dan doing this (laughs) number 27's family. You know, it's just like, it's too much to, you know, to deal with. And he also, Dan also said that happened the day after Christmas. So you go home, you have the holiday with your family, you come back, that's what you're doing. There's got to be a lot of emotion in that. I, I would imagine. So now they have these bodies, but the work is not done because now they have to identify them. 
So people were asking people with missing relatives to send dental records, DNA, uh, DNA rather, was not used at this time. So really dental records were the only way to go. And one of the things too, like the gay community at this time, they did not have any trust in the police. Um, so they were less likely to even report crimes. So some of these people went unidentified. Um, but with that being said, we have to talk about Jeffrey Rignall, who is a champion. He was picked up by Gacy. Gacy chloroformed him and he passed out. He was then chained to a two by four and violated. Jeffrey reported that he was raped, but police did not take it seriously at all. Rignall actually went out and tried to find Gacy himself because nobody was helping him. So he tried to retrace his steps and he went because he was kind of in and out of consciousness after he was chloroformed. He remembered a sign like on the highway and he actually went back to the sign and just waited there. He parked there. So when Gacy drove by, he got his license plate number and then his address. And then he actually went and gave that to police. Like, here you go. This is the guy. You're welcome. Yeah. So, um, they actually finally arrested Gacy for that. And he was actually out on bond at the time he was arrested for the weed and then the murders. Yes. He was actually out on bond for that. So, wow. Thank you, Jeffrey Rignall. Good for him. Right? Yeah. Way to advocate for yourself. Did he have to escape or did he let him go? I think he was let go. Wow. After he was tortured. Yeah. Like, the fuck? So, while talking with Gacy, so we're back to the, the room where he's just talking his head off, they asked him where all these people were buried after he's talking about he killed all these people. And he was actually able to draw them a map of the crawl space, which is pretty detailed, too. By the time he handed it over, there were 20-something plus bodies on there. So he actually remembered. Like, he had a decent memory about where things were. Um, So he finally tells them about Rob. um, And he said Rob did come up to him to ask him about a job. Gacy said he didn't have time, but Rob said he would ride with him. He drove back to his house and assaulted Rob. Um, And Rob was upset and started crying. But Gacy said he was handcuffed at this time. He put the rope around his neck like he had showed them earlier. The phone rang at that point and Gacy went to answer it. He claims when he came back, Rob was on the floor, gone. I don't believe this story. I mean, I believe the bones of it, but like, oh, sorry, I went to get the phone and then he died. Like, that's what his story was. And, you know, like he's saying that like it wasn't his intention. It was an accident. So he then went and put him in the attic and went to sleep um, with his body upstairs in the house. He said Rob had been on his bed. Um after he passed and he goes oh it's like when you clean your butt off to go to sleep and there's just all this stuff laying there that's how he thought of rob he thought of rob as stuff you know um and the next day we're gonna call back to earlier 
is when the police showed up at his door trying to get him to come to answer some questions about Rob's disappearance. That's the moment when he said that his uncle had died and he was busy and he couldn't. Rob's body was in the attic while this was happening. So while the police are at his door, and that's what Gacy's thinking about is, oh shit, Rob is upstairs um, and he has to take care of that. That's so, right, I forgot about that. Right. So that's even next level. So the police leave and he then takes Rob's body, puts it in the trunk of his car and drives it to the Des Plaines River where he apparently had also thrown other bodies. Wow. Right. Um, and he said he did this because he was out of space at his house. Right. All the other available space was taken. When he went to drive back, he lost control of his car and went off the road, getting stuck in the mud. A trooper came by and helped him um, to like tow him out. But that's when Gacy went to the police station and was covered in mud. So now we have an explanation for that. Because of a rough winter... Robert Peace's body wasn't discovered until April of 1979. This was explained as the water was so cold, it took the water warming up for his body to expel the natural gas that occurs with decomposition for it to surface. Rob was identified through dental records. After they were done going through Gacy's property, they were supposed to return it to the condition it had been before they tore it up. But a bunch of people from the county came in and were like, listen, this house is fucked. We'd be better off building him a new one. Um, as if he was coming back again. Yeah. Anyway, either. but that's the state of the house. Like, that's how much they had to kind of dismantle it, you know. So, all told, 26 bodies were recovered from the crawl space. One body was recovered from under the addition to the house. One body was recovered next to the driveway. And the final body from the house was recovered from under the concrete floor in the garage. 29 total from that location, 33 in total, including the river. Nine bodies were unable to be identified, unfortunately. So Bill Kunkel, Bob Egan, and Terry Sullivan were the prosecutors on the case. Sam Amaranti, of course, is still Gacy's lawyer. Amaranti stated at the time that he believed Gacy was insane during the murders. That's what he came to believe after he heard everything he heard. Um, and this case was pending for 15 months. Amaranti said he believed Gacy had the same rights as every American to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, but he was mad that he constantly lied to him and tried to manipulate him. So even he wasn't immune to Gacy's shitty personality. Um, but that's how he was, and that's how he treated everyone. So they played tape between Gacy and Amaranti where Gacy starts his next song and dance of, I don't even know I killed them. I don't even know if I did. I'm not denying it. But whether yes. I deny it or not makes no difference. So Sam knew this was too big a case for him to tackle on his own. So he brought in Robert Mata. Mata's initial opinion of Gacy is that he was smart, manipulative, a liar. So pretty much on par with what everyone else thought of him at that point. Um... They decided to go for their defense, guilty by reason of insanity. Gacy did not fit the classic defense. He hid his victims, right? So that's not just like 
you're severely mentally ill, you go wildly killing people, and you just leave them and skip along. No, he was able to have the presence of mind to then hide his tracks because he did know the difference between right and wrong. Exactly, and that's the core question. Do you know the difference between right and wrong? So his lawyer said, though, even though this, you know, he didn't fit classically, everything considered, it was really the only defense that they could use. Um... And he said he didn't believe in, he belonged in prison, but in a mental health facility. The prosecutors, on the other hand, were saying he had premeditation, knowing, planning, etc. So, Gacy received private and clinical psychological evaluations. Richard Rappaport, he was a forensic psychologist, said that typically, when they do these type of um, evaluations, they go all the way back to childhood because they want to know what makes this person so that's what they do. John explained himself as a child that he always wanted to build and be constructive and learn. He liked classical music, flowers, baking. He questions his masculinity from an early age. Um, as his stature was short and fat, he did not enjoy sports. I think that's a direct quote even. Yeah. <laughs> so he was sick a lot as a kid. Well, okay. I've seen it both ways. I've seen that he was sick a lot. And I also have seen that he's a hypochondriac. So it's probably somewhere in the middle. But that's the same thing with Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers said that he was sick a lot and was alone a lot. And he turned out vastly different. Was Mr. Rogers sick a lot? Yeah. I didn't know that. There, there's there's a good uh, documentary on him as well that you should watch. I'm going to have to watch that next. Yeah. You might have to do True Crime Find Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Even though, you know, we love Mr. Rogers. But, of course. So... He said his dad thought he was stupid and never would amount to anything. Gacy has a lot of hangups around his dad, but psychologists would describe his father as the aggressor. No matter what Gacy did, he was criticized. He described his dad as Jekyll and Hyde. Um, he claimed that his drinking wildly exacerbated that. His dad spent a lot of time in the basement and would get nice and toasted before coming up and raising holy hell in his home. Um, because of this, Gacy gravitated towards his mom, who was pretty, like, feminine, and she had more of a soft personality, and she was kind. Um, but he did struggle with his sexuality, and one of the ways this manifested was he actually would steal his mom's underwear and would wear it. Apparently, when his mom found out about this, he claimed she made him wear it as punishment and said if he got caught with it again, she would make him wear it outside. So... That happened. Um, Gacy acknowledges that he may have acted out at home to get attention or sympathy, but the psychological reports indicate that Gacy was a neurotic psychopath and a compulsive personality. So think obsessive compulsive. Um, January 28th, 1980, jury selection. Um, they decided they were going to hold the trial in another town a ways away to try to give Gacy a fair trial because there's so much coverage. More tape recording where an investigator asked Gacy if he's scared before the trial. Gacy says no, because normally if you go to trial, you know if you did something or not. And he didn't know if he did it. That's what he's saying. That's his new story. Um, he said that he felt he was being cheated. So the trial starts. And they present the case and talk about the 33 murders. Prosecution describing Gacy as rational evil which is, I think, a good way to put it. 
Gacy said he hated prosecutor Kunkel, um, claiming that he was bisexual and he had seen him where he used to cruise. Kunkel disputes this. He's like, that never happened. But like, I wonder if he did. It's probably a lie, right? Just like everything else. Even so. It's not relevant, certainly, but it's just interesting. Um, so parents and family members testified in this case. And the jury foreman stated that that was the worst part. Um, as, as the jury, you know, feeling their pain as they talked about their deceased loved ones. That was really hard. So during week four, Gacy's mom testified to talk about Gacy being beaten as a child, stating oh, his father was a horrible, awful, drunk person. What was that? That was sad. That was sad when his mom came in and she was like, oh, there's Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. She she didn't sound like she was totally with it, but she was with it enough, you know. And I think they even said um, when Gacy and someone on his team were talking, they said she was a good witness, I think. They, he was like, mom did good today, something like that. Um, but the core of the case really is, was he insane or evil? That's the question, right? Rappaport said he believed he was psychotic and would have episodes when triggered by situations that may have depicted the relationship he had with his father, but was sane enough in between the episodes to cover up his behavior. That sounds kind of convenient, <laughs> right? Um, but an interesting parallel, he said his father basically victimized Gacy in the basement of his home and Gacy put his victims in his basement or crawl space. So that's an interesting point. But also, could he have just put there because it was the easiest place to put them? Does it go that deep? You know? Sickeningly enough, unfortunately, so many people have gone through similar instances in their life and they don't choose to act the way that Gacy did. It's a matter of severe mental illness that was evil. Right. Yeah. I definitely understand, you know. So Sam, so that's Gacy's lawyer again, and the psychologist, um, both said he projected onto his victims that they were stupid and they were weak. Right, just as his father would to him. I believe that. I think that makes sense. Well, it's funny you say that because I was thinking earlier that I wonder if that's where, you know, he would let some people go is because they were able to outsmart him that he kind of felt uh, inferior to them in the way that he felt to perhaps his father or things like that. Like yeah. when... Um, Tony, I think, mm -hmm. switched the cuffs around mm -hmm. onto him that he was like, all right, I'm going to let this guy go because right. he outsmarted me. It's very possible. I think that's a good theory. Um, so he also said in killing them, burying them was like he was killing himself over and over, like self-loathing kind of. And I'm like, uh, maybe. Okay. But so. I don't believe that. Uh, yeah, I know. So Kunkel makes the point, um, just kind of to explain how, how these trials kind of work. He said that when the defense raises the question of insanity, it then falls on the state to disprove insanity at the time of the crime. So the minute that, that the defense brings that up, then that's what the prosecution has to go in and disprove. During week five of the trial, Jim Cavanaugh, who's a state psychiatrist, 
said at one point that if Gacy was admitted to a psychiatric facility, he would probably wind up getting released because he didn't believe that he was truly insane. So basically, he was telling the jury, if you do find him guilty by reason of insanity, he's going to walk among us, right? Um, and Sam was saying to the jury that Gacy should be studied in a facility to prevent like this from uh, things like this from happening in the future. But Kunkel sounds like he made a very compelling closing argument. He said that he had the opening to the crawl space. They actually had it there in court placed right in front of the jury box. And he ripped the pictures of the victims off the board and said, you show Gacy the same mercy that he showed these victims when he put them here. And he threw the victim's pictures in the opening of the crawl space where they bounced against the wall of the jury box and the floor. Wow. I don't know how every single person in that courtroom did not break down at that moment. How can you not? That's so powerful. Um, and just, I mean, it's great. Even Sam was like, that was great. He's yeah. like, it was over. It was, if it wasn't already over. Yeah. <laughs> and the jury came back with a verdict very fast, less than two hours. That's yeah. insanely fast. The foreman of the jury said that the consensus from the start of deliberation was that he made his own choices and the insanity defense was not even really part of the discussion. At the time of the verdict, John Mangese had killed the most people in U.S. history wow. more than anyone else ever had, which is not really a record that anybody should strive for. On March 13th, uh, 1978, I believe, he was sentenced to die. Amaranti said that it was weird after the fact because he was upset. Sam is upset, despite believing in, in Gacy's guilt because he worked really hard and him and Mata were emotional about the loss. You know, they really tried to put a good case on for their client and get him kind of more help, which I understand to an extent. But he said Gacy was almost like consoling them. Yeah, he was saying like, you know, it was not a matter of me being innocent or anything because it was obvious that I did it, right? It was something well, he was, to that effect. He was still kind of saying like, I don't know if I did it. Like he was still sticking by that. Yeah. But he but he was like, but you went up against society, like what, whatever bullshit, you know, he was saying. But he's just a, a strange guy. Um, on the tapes, they were asking Gacy if he felt relief that the trial and everything was over. And he keeps doing that. No, I don't understand. Because they said I'm guilty. I'm supposed to feel guilty. That's what he said. So he's still taking this like me. What? What did I do? Like he's still playing kind of like he's the victim at this point. Um, so he's sitting in prison, he's researching law, he's saying his defense was subpar, just anything, you know, still passing the buck, as usual. Um, but then he starts coming out with these other statements. He says, I didn't kill all those people. I was complicit in two murders, but I only know about those two. So he's saying that he helped to dispose of the bodies, Yeah. but that's it. And at one point he said he didn't kill anybody. So he's just throwing things out there, seeing if anything will stick. And he was saying he was going to get out. He was like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to get out, right? So May 10th, 1994, the day of execution has finally arrived after like 15 years of appeals. You sit on death row for a long ass time. Um, but they had a lottery because they have a limited room on who's allowed in to witness these executions. I know Kunkel said that he was one of three state witnesses, but they had a lottery for media. Um, 
And I understand you want the scoop, but I can't understand wanting to be in the room for that. That's not a thing I understand. No. Um, so Walter Jacobson is a journalist. Um, his name was drawn, so he got to go for that. And Greg Bedeau, I think we mentioned him before. He was one of the investigators on the case. He said he wanted Gacy to be like, he used the word unglued. He wanted him to be scared and crying. He wanted him to suffer. Yeah. You know, before his death, like he made his victim suffer. Um, and then they play this recording. Ugh. So Gacy says, hey, I killed 33 people. You're only going to kill me once disgust like ugh, laughing yeah he's like chuckling it's just a piece of shit the pig but really it's it's fascinating for me to hear him talk and like justify himself because it speaks to his like his brain like how his brain functions and that's what intrigues me about him so it's been said that gacy's last words were kiss my ass but bideau who was in there said he didn't hear it. He said he just took a deep breath and was gone. He was executed by lethal injection. So in 2010, eight of Gacy's unidentified victims were exhumed so they could attempt to uh, identify them through DNA because now that's a thing we have. They were sent to the University of North Texas who interestingly just identified Princess Doe. That's in the last episode. They were able to identify 19-year-old Bill Bundy, formerly victim number 19, In 2017, the family of a guy named Jimmy Hackinson came forward. They give DNA, and Jimmy was identified as victim number 24. In 2021, another victim was identified, Wayne Alexander. There are six remaining unidentified victims, but they are still willing to test DNA to figure out who the remaining are. So that's that's good that they're keeping that open. So Mike Bonin's sister was asked what she would want people to remember or know about her brother or the victims. And she just said they were here and they should be remembered as real people and not just thought of as victims or how they died. I found that very powerful because she said it a few times. She said they were here. I agree. Right. So that's really all the facts I have on this. If you believe though, I'm going to give you the statement. This came at the documentary too. But if you believe that a missing loved one could have been a victim of Gacy, because they're still looking into this, contact the Cook County Sheriff's Office, cookcountysheriff.org. Um, what a wild story. This one has always just impacted me on such a level because there were so many people involved. And we could do a whole other episode, a whole other hour about his psychology in specific and examples of how he would flip because he did interviews on TV and stuff. And I mentioned this in the first episode. I want to bring it up again because it's one of my favorite books ever. I might have even mentioned it to you before. If you want to read more about Gacy's like psychology, how his brain functions, you have to read The Last Victim by Jason Moss. He, it's a true story, about I think he was in college and he decided for one of his projects he was going to write to serial killers as their victims as a as of someone they would have seen as a potential victim like really? he, yes he would study them like the victims 
and say what did they kind of have in common and then kind of portray those traits in letters. He actually formed a relationship with Gacy who very willingly responded to him and started calling him collect and started sending him things and made him come visit him. I don't want to give it away. Um, but he was imposing himself in this person's life, even from behind bars and the, the psychological toll it took on Jason cannot be overstated from behind bars. And what's that book called again? The Last Victim. So I highly recommend that book. I've read it several times. I will read it several more times. Um, Jason Moss unfortunately committed suicide. Wow. Um, partially as a result of what of the psychological trauma he had been through. Um, but there was other stuff as well, I'm sure. But it's a really powerful book, in my opinion. Definitely check that out. Um, do you have anything you want to add? Anything you want to say? Uh, oh. I did before, but I have since forgotten. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a wild ride. It has I know been. that. I watched the series several times to make sure that I would be uh, able to go back and forth with you about mm. this. You did. And... Um, it's a horrible thing that these families went through and... Continue to go through. It wasn't that long ago. Continue to go through, yeah. And just the fact that he seemed so much like a guy that you could trust on a lot of levels. I mean, the photos that they showed of him even shaking hands with the Pope at one point. And, uh... One of the first ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Lady yeah. Bird Johnson, maybe? Lady Bird. Lady Bird Johnson. What a name. Lady Bird Johnson. Yeah, I um, feel. Yeah, he really... I don't know. Maybe we'll go... Maybe one day I'll do another episode just like psychological breakdown of Gacy because that part to me is the most interesting because I think things can be learned from studying his behavior and his brain. And actually, that's something um, that they did. They actually removed his brain. I was going to ask that. Yeah, they actually removed his brain. I don't remember the results of that. I don't think they found anything notable when they studied it. Um, so he's just... He How just... do you like that? Even in death, he was considered unremarkable. <laughs> what would his father say? Oh, he would hate that so much. Let's say it again. He was unremarkable. John Wayne Gacy was unremarkable. I love that. I think that's a great stopping point. <laughs> so... Thank you for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed this ride with us. Um, come check out True Crime Time on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have Twitter. It's kind of uh, lonely over there. We don't have a lot of uh, friends. <laughs> so come check us out. Um, and just thank you for listening to True Crime Time, where it's always time for true crime. Hey, thanks for having me. Lover boy, it's okay. <laughs> You're welcome. See you next time. <laughs>